Well, good morning, church. How are you guys this morning? Good, good, good. Well, for those of you that I've not met, my name is Jonathan Pig. I work with our students here. My wife is Mason. She's sitting right there. And uh, I'm grateful that we get to be here this morning and to talk to you guys. Jeff is on vacation and he's headed back this morning. And so you guys are stuck with me, but I am grateful that, uh, that number one, that we as a church allow him time away uh, to focus on his family and to rest and relax and be able to come back and lead us well. But I'm also thankful that when he's away, that he gives us opportunities, people like me, to come and speak and to, uh, to handle God's word. And so I'm thankful this morning and grateful and privileged and honored uh, to bring God's word this morning. Well, we're going to be picking up right where Jeff left off in in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you, or you can turn on your phone, whatever you need to do. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And we're picking up right where he left off in verses, or he left off in chapter 1, verse 30. And we're continuing this series titled, Joy Filled. And the book of Philippians is a joy-filled book, a book that is all, there's joy all throughout the book, but this book is also not just a joy-filled book, but we're in the middle of the part of Paul encouraging the Philippian church to certain actions. So he's exhorting them to certain things. And so that's where we're picking up in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if you have your Bibles, turn there, starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of Of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let me pray. Well, Lord God, thank you for your word. I pray, God, that as we seek to understand and read your word, that we would not come with any presuppositions or any biases but rather that we would be led by your spirit to the truth. So I pray, God, that you'd be with me as I speak, that you would help me to be faithful to your text and to encourage your church. Lord God, may you be glorified. It's your son's name that we pray. Amen. Well, Thanksgiving is over. As you can see, we've got these trees up here. More than likely, you guys have already put up your tree, or in the next week or so, you're going to put your tree up. Thanksgiving is done, which means Christmas is here. Now, I might be the only one that believes this, and we can argue about it later, but I believe that November should have the month of Thanksgiving. Whoa. That Thanksgiving should have the month of November, and that Christmas should have the month of December. Anyone with me on that? Do not mix the two. That's me. There's two separate holidays. They should be celebrated as two separate holidays. 
But now it's time to celebrate Christmas. So now if you have been listening to your Christmas music and doing all your Christmas decorations, that's fine. We can talk about why you're long, wrong later. But right now, it is time for us to begin Christmas. And so with that, we as a church celebrate Advent, which is a part of the liturgical church calendar. And Advent just means the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. So Advent means the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. So for followers of Jesus, Advent means the expectant awaiting of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus. This is what we're celebrating during Christmas time, the arrival of Jesus. We celebrate the hope, the joy, the peace, and the love that Jesus Christ brings when he came the first time over 2,000 years ago. That's what this whole time of year is about. And Advent is really just an invitation for us as followers of Jesus to put our eyes on Jesus and to not take our eyes off of Jesus, to not be full of the busyness of this season, but to put our eyes on Jesus Christ alone. That's what Advent is. It's nothing more than an invitation for followers of Jesus to rest in Christ. It's an invitation to be intentional, to ensure that we are focusing on Christ. That's what Advent is. And so as we celebrate Advent, this idea of Jesus coming, we're looking back 2,000 years to his first coming, but we also, as 21st century Christians, can look forward to his second coming, his second Advent. So Christmas time for the follower of Jesus is much more significant than the rest, or than the rest of the world. For the follower of Jesus, we have hope now <laughs> that Jesus is here, and we have hope to look into the future. Christmas is not just about getting together with your family. Christmas is not just about getting or giving the perfect gift. If you're a follower of Jesus, Christmas is the celebration of Jesus Christ. To the follower of Jesus, Christmas should be a much more joy-filled time as we think about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, coming to this earth. But for some, the Christmas season is not filled with joy. In fact, uh, the American Psychological Association conducted a study, and it found that 38% of those that were surveyed reported an uptick of anxiety, stress, depression, and sadness during the holiday season. That number was astounding to me. Almost 40% of people that were surveyed said that during the holiday season, Thanksgiving and Christmas, they have uptick in anxiety, stress, and depression. The reasons that were given were spending time with family, which is terrible. <laughs> Another reason given was the lack of time to do the things that they want to do, or financial pressure. These are many reasons. Maybe you've experienced this, but this time of year for some people can be anxiety-inducing. It can be stress-inducing. It can be pressure-inducing. Inducing. It can bring up sad thoughts as we think about those that are no longer here with us to celebrate this time of year. We can be lonely even though we're in the midst of being around lots of people, we can feel feelings of loneliness. And this morning, I want to suggest that maybe the reason that this time of year for some of us is not so joy-filled is because our focus is off. We're focused on the aspects of Christmas and what Christmas is rather than focused on the person of Jesus Christ. We focus on the aspects of Christmas rather than Jesus Christ. One pastor said it this way, and I think it sums up pretty well what we're going to talk a little bit about this morning. And it says, he said this, Christmas to our culture and sometimes to us is about presence underneath the tree. But to the follower of Jesus, Christmas should be about God's presence on the tree. 
Listen, if we celebrate Christmas and don't think about the cross, then we're doing it wrong. (laughs) Jesus came to die. We should think about the cross when we think about his first coming. And so Jeff, a couple weeks ago, he gave this really cheesy acronym uh, for joy, and this is how we maintain our joy. If I was with students, I would probably do something around this time of, hey, can you guys tell me what that acronym was? But I know you guys probably aren't like students, so I'll give it to you without asking you. But maybe you remember this acronym, and the acronym that we need to maintain in order for us to maintain our relationship and maintain our joy is JOY. And the acronym stands for Jesus First, Others Second, and Yourself Last. If we maintain this order in our relationships and in our life, then we will maintain our joy, right? And Jeff made the joke that if we get it wrong and we we put ourselves first, then we really get yoge rather than joy, if you guys remember this, right? And so we want to make sure that we are focusing on Jesus first, others second, and ourselves last. Maybe this holiday season, maybe in life in general, your focus is not on Jesus Christ. Like Jeff said, you've got some yoge, not some joy, right? So over the next four weeks and then at our Christmas Eve service, we're going to continue in this book of Philippians. We're continuing our series titled Joy-Filled. And we're going to celebrate how we as followers of Jesus can be filled with joy because of Jesus. So my main idea, our main takeaway for this morning is this, is that followers of Jesus should remain focused on Jesus Christ. And remaining focused on Jesus Christ will lead us to unity, humility, and joy. When we're focused on Jesus Christ, a byproduct of that focus will be unity and humility. So the first thing I want you to see is a joy-filled unity. Starting in verses 1 and 2 of Philippians chapter 2, it says this, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. Unity is on his mind, on Paul's mind, as he's writing this portion of the book of Philippians. You get it. It says in verse 2, same, same, full accord, one mind. Unity is his purpose. Unity, you probably know this, but unity means to be united or to be joined together as a group, as a whole. And so Paul's desire for the church at Philippi is for them to be united together, working together. And you see this in verses 1 through 2. He even cares so much for their unity that he says in verse 2, he says, complete my joy by having the same love, the same mind, being of full accord and of one mind. So this is a pretty serious deal for him, for the Philippian church to be united. In verses 1 through 2, Paul calls for the church to be united, but he doesn't just call them to unity by saying, hey, church, listen, be united, and then goes on to something else. No, he gives them the basis for their unity first, and then he gives them the call to unity. For a lot of you guys, I'm not a parent. Mason and I don't have kids, but I kind of understand a little bit of parenting. Maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong later. But if you give your kid a reason for what you're about to ask them to do, more times than not, they're more than likely going to be willing to do that if you've given them a reason. Is that correct, parents? If you give them a reason before you ask them to do something, they're going to be more likely to do it than if you just say, well, because I said so, right? So Paul is not saying just because I said so here. He's saying, here's the reason that I want you to have unity. He says this in verse 1. The basis for the call to unity is in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, 
any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, and any affection and sympathy. You see, the original language would have read something like this, okay? It would have read something like, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, and if any affection and compassion. We take out the word if every single time to make it more readable. But if would normally be, in the original language in Greek, it would have been if, 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 if. If would have been there every time. Now, Paul is not using the word if to say that these things are possible. He's not saying, well, if there's any encouragement in Christ. If you've got some of that, then this is a reason for, uh, for, for unity. If you have any comfort from love, then yeah, you should be united. No, these are certainties. The if really could better be translated since or because. And so if it's translated since or because, it would read like this. So since there is encouragement from Christ, and because there is comfort from love, since there is participation in the Spirit, and because of affection and sympathy. These are certainties, not possibilities. And that changes everything. This is the basis for the unity that Paul is calling the Philippian church to. So the basis for the unity of the Philippian church is because of your encouragement in Christ, church. Because of the love of Jesus that has comforted you, church. Because of the fellowship that you have with Jesus. And because of the tenderness that Jesus has shown you, that's the basis, remain united. The basis of the call to unity for the Philippian church is Jesus Christ himself. That is the basis for the church to be united. He is the reason for the church to be united. You see, because of Christ's church, we are all able to be united. We're all able to be united. I want you just real quick, a little bit of interaction. I want you to just look around the room. <laughs> look around the room, everybody look up, look at the balcony. People do sit up in the balcony, so you've got to lift your head up. People do in the balcony sit down here, so you've got to kind of peek over a little bit. We're all different. We're all different. Here's the beauty of the church, I think. Not one of us in this room is alike. We have lawyers. We have teachers. We've got contractors. We've got older people. I'm not calling you old, I'm just saying older. We've got young people. We've got Democrats, Republicans. How beautiful is this gathering together? The fact that apart from this time, no one, maybe a lot of us, might not choose to be with these people outside of this room. Right? We might not choosingly or knowingly choose to be in here with these people. But you know what? When we come in here, all those reasons for division go away because we unite under one name, the name of Jesus Christ. And that is beautiful. It is absolutely beautiful. As we were singing, it was really cool. I was sitting over here watching Evie, just at the top of her lungs, sing Good and Gracious King. <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> it's beautiful for us as a church to unite together around one name, the name of Jesus Christ. Where else in this world would you find a place that, that, that northerners and southerners, that video gamers and athletes, that bookworms and artists, that all these different people would knowingly and choosingly 
choose to be here. In Revelation 7, verses 9 through 10, we get a picture of what heaven is going to be like through John the Revelator. It says this in Revelation 7, verse 9 through 10. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. This is beautiful. From every nation, from all tribes, and all peoples, and all languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Church, at the end, we're all going to be together. From all nations and all tribes and all languages, we're all going to be singing praises to the same Jesus. And we as a church now, in, 21st century, in the 21st century, here at Meadowview in Georgetown, we have an opportunity to be a picture of what that is in heaven. How beautiful is this picture that at the end of days, all people from all different countries and all different languages will gather together united in order to worship the Lord. So that's our basis for unity. Jesus Christ, one name, the name that is above every other name. We can unite around. But then he gives us what that unity looks like in verse 2. In verse 2, he shows what their unity based in Christ will look like. He says this, complete my joy. By being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. So he says, complete my joy, right? Now, what I don't want you to think, Paul's joy is not dependent upon other people's unity. Okay, that's not what he's saying. He's not going to say, he's not saying, I'm only going to be joy-filled, church, if you're united. What he's saying is more like a dad with his kids. Again, I'm not a dad. But it's like a dad with his kids, if he sees his kids being around one another, united, playing with one another, smiling. As a dad and as a mom, your heart kind of gets a little warm, doesn't it? As a pastor, it brings joy to a pastor's heart to see his church uniting together. So it's not dependent, but it does bring warmth. So that's what he's saying. He's not saying that his joy is dependent upon their unity. He's saying it makes his heart warm and fuzzy to feel the unity that these people are having. So in verse 2, again, we get these, this idea of what it looks like. Same mind, same love, being in full accord. Unity that is based in Christ will look like this. Like I said, same mind, same love, and full accord and of one mind. The church at Philippi, what Paul is calling them to, is that they should, be, they should agree with one another more often than they disagree. That the church of Philippi should love one another. And that the church at Philippi should be so united in everything that they do, and in unison, they should have the same, it's like having the same mind. That's how united they should be. What he's not doing here is he's not calling the church to not be diverse. He's not saying, don't, don't, he's not saying be so segregated that you don't have diversity in thought or in ethnicity in your church. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is he's encouraging them to remain united amongst their diversity. We have more reasons for division in our church than we do for unity. We can name a lot of reasons for division. We can name really one reason for unity, and like I said, it's the name of Jesus, and that should suffice. We all have lots of reasons for division, different political affiliations, different socioeconomic statuses. Fill in the blank. Whatever reason for division you have, there's an even better reason for unity. It's like Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, nor male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
This is what Paul is calling the Philippian church to as well. Not to not be diverse, but to remain united amongst their diversity. When the church is united across denominational lines, that means Church of Christ, Church of God, Presbyterian, there are brothers and sisters too. When we're united across denominational lines, across political party lines, across certain theological divides, then people outside of the church and people inside of the church get a picture of heaven. And we should want that. We should want for the people outside of this church to be, see a little bit of what heaven is going to be like when we're so united. And then when we're united, we also all are reminded of the glorious nature of heaven. So the church at Metaview should be of the same mentality. We should strive towards the same things. That's why we have a mission statement. That's why we have a vision statement. The church at Metaview should have a love for one another, not just in word, but also in deed. Not a love that says, I love you to your face and then stabs you behind your back, but a love that is worked out through actions and through time. And the church at Metaview should be united. So Paul, he wanted the, the Philippian church to be united. He wanted them to strive for unity based in Christ. And that unity is what we should desire as well. But how do we do that? How do we strive to have the same love, the same mind, and be in full accord and of one mind? How is unity developed and cultivated and created? Well, I'm glad you asked, church. I know you were. That's my second point. A joy-filled unity is created by joy-filled humility. A joy-filled unity is created by joy-filled humility. Verses 3 through 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. You see, church, Corporate unity, meaning our collective unity, is created by individually being humble. Our corporate unity is created by individual humility. If we want to have the same mind and have the same love and be a full accord and of one mind corporately, then what we need to be doing as individuals is humbling ourselves. Humbling ourselves and lifting other people up. So how do you as an individual help to create unity as th this church? You practice humility. And listen, I know, I honestly think I'm one of the best at being humble. I'm kidding. <laughs> I know it's really hard, right? I know it's really hard to be humble. Humility can be defined as this. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. I got that all sorts of confused when I was studying this week. I was like, wait, hold on, what? It's not thinking of yourself less. It's thinking, wait, no, see, there it was again. Look at that. <laughs> Told you. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. A lot of times people think that humility means that we just think we're rags of people that we really should be suffering on our own in order to exalt other people. That's not what humility is. Humility is we think of ourselves in a way that we, we, we carry a little bit of confidence, right? That's fine. 
But when the time comes, we think of others more than we think of ourselves. There's a pastor, his name's Harry Ironside. Maybe you guys are familiar with him. He was a pastor at Moody Bible, or Moody Bible Church in Chicago from 1929 to 1948. And so you guys have probably never heard of him. I hadn't heard of him until this week. But he recounts his struggle with humility. And if you're sitting here thinking, oh, no, I've, I've got humility figured out. Listen. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> okay? Harry Ironside's a pastor, and he recounts his struggle with humility. And it goes something like this. He, he goes up to an older friend of his, and he's like, hey, man, I'm, I'm struggling with this whole humility thing. I'm struggling with my pride. I'm such a prideful person. And he went up to somebody that was older than him, and he, he was like, what can I do? What can I do to, to humble myself, to ensure that I'm, more, that I'm more humble, right? And his older friend, he says, all right, so here's what I want you to do. He said, I want, you to, I want you to take a sandwich board. Anybody know what a sandwich board is? I didn't. So a sandwich board goes over your shoulders, and it's like a poster board. It goes down right here on the back. So he said, take a sandwich board, throw it over your shoulders, and walk around the city of Chicago all day and have written on it the plan of salvation. That'll humble you. <laughs> And he talked about, he said, okay, so he did it. And he talked about how all day he was just ridiculed and called out, name called. And he felt so humiliated. By the end of the day, he was getting ready. He walked around all day in the business district, in the shopping district. And at the end of the day, he took the, the sandwich board off. And he said, he said you know, I, I realized, man, that was, that was so humbling. I'm just humiliated. I've just been degraded all day. And then he thought to himself, he said, you know what, but I bet there's not one other person on this place, this planet, that would do what I just did. I don't think he got it. <laughs> That's the whole point. As soon as we think we have it, we've lost it. As soon as we think we're humble, maybe you think you're a humble person, you don't think that this humility thing to create unity is for you. No, <laughs> it is. We all struggle with humility and pride. So if we have a church that's full of people with the mentality of, you know what, I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread, we'll never be united. If we have a church full of people that are full of pride and arrogance, we will never, ever, ever be united. So as we strive to be humble people in order to create unity, Paul gives the Philippian church a couple of ways that that humility is worked out in verses 3 and 4. And the first way that as we strive for humility, we should, number one, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility we should consider others more significant than ourselves. That's the first way. That's, that's straight from verse 3. <laughs> Another way to think of this is don't be selfish. <laughs> don't try to impress other people. Do you think in your mind that, that you're superior to others? Are you concerned about the needs of those that are around you? We can't be united if we have people trying to build a name for themselves rather than uniting around the one name that matters. If we as a church are all doing things for one another, even, even if we're trying to love others, but all, all the while we have this ulterior motive of advancing our own name, we're not going to be united. As we strive for humility as individuals, we don't have to think of ourselves as rags compared to everyone else. Instead, we have to think of others as more significant than ourselves, more important than us. I have a couple what-ifs. I just want you to think about them for a minute as I speak, as I say them. 
What if our church was full of people who considered others to be more important than themselves? What if our church was full of that? What would change? What if we have, as individuals thought of ourselves less and thought more of those around us? What if when we did things for others in the church, we did not think about our own standing or how what we're doing is advancing our own name? What if as a church body, we stopped thinking about our wants and our desires as individuals and we started thinking about other people? Our church would be united if we stopped thinking about ourselves and started thinking of others. But then he gives a second consideration. As we strive for humility, number two, we should each not look to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. That comes from verse four. Being a humble person does not mean that you neglect your needs. It just means that you think more highly of others. The world doesn't revolve around you. <laughs> Sorry. The world doesn't revolve around me, and I've got to remind myself a lot that the world doesn't revolve around me. We, as a church, should be constantly humbling ourselves and thinking of other people more. Because here's what happens. If I stop thinking of myself so much, and I humble myself, and I uplift you, right? And then you... Stop thinking of yourself, and you uplift others, which means me. And you humble yourself and lift up others. That means you're getting uplifted, they're getting uplifted, we're getting uplifted. It all works out. If we're constantly dying to ourselves and allowing Jesus to live through us in humility. So if we're constantly denying ourselves and lifting others up, and others are doing the same thing, then we will be united. But you see, our hearts are evil. Jeremiah 17.9 says that the human heart is deceitful. And if we're striving for humility in order to create unity, our motives at first might be pure. Your motives at first to be humble might be pure, but eventually along the way, because your heart is evil, you might eventually go astray and might not be striving for humility for the same reasons. You see, the only thing that will ensure that we have pure motives in our pursuit of unity as a church and in pursuit of humility is that we remain focused on Jesus Christ. That's the only way that we will ensure that our heart is always in check, is if we're fixing our eyes on Jesus. So the third thing I want you to see this morning is that a joy-filled unity that is created by joy-filled humility is fueled by focus on Christ. Verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
when we read this, we should be excited. <laughs> but here's the reality. Verses 5, verse 5, our example of humility is Jesus Christ. So he gives us the call to unity in verses 1 to 2. He tells us how we, how we work on that unity by humility in verses 3 through 4. And then he gives us the example of who we're to strive after in humility of Jesus Christ in verses 5 through 11. So our example of humility is Jesus Christ. Verse 5 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Our example of humility for the sake of unity is Jesus Christ. You get that? Verse 5. Jesus Christ, verse 6, is fully God. Yet he did not consider his godliness something to be exploited. You see, I don't know if you know this, but Jesus existed before the creation of the world. John 1.1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. And I know you know this, but just so that way we can say we did it. This is talking about Jesus. The Word often refers to Jesus. So if we were to take Word out and replace Jesus and replace He with Jesus, it would read like this. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus was with God in the beginning, and through Jesus all things were made. Without Jesus, nothing was made that has been made. Church, Jesus was here, and he humbled himself and came down here. He was at the very beginning of creation. He existed before time began. Yet, he came from heaven where he existed before everything else. He came from heaven down to earth. And in doing so, he humbled himself by taking on the form of human. You know this. Being a human isn't all that it's cracked up to be. (laughs) Right? We all have sin struggles. We're all getting older. Things start hurting that you didn't know hurt. (laughs) Right? Being human has its flaws. And yet, this man who is Jesus, who was God, humbled himself and took on humanity. Talk about humbling. (laughs) What a selfless act. He became human with all that that entails. And we call this Jesus taking on human flesh, the incarnation. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas. The Jesus, God, coming And putting on flesh and living with us. Emmanuel, God with us, is what we're celebrating this time of year. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh, the Word, again, being Jesus, and Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. We celebrate the incarnation of God through Jesus now. So we're celebrating We celebrate that God took on humanity, that he humbled himself to come here for us. You see, Jesus could have come to earth as a king, as he rightly could have done. He could have lined it all up to where he came to this earth and was wrapped in nice scarlet, silky robes full of of jewels, whatever the word is. He could have allowed himself to be that. But instead, he allowed himself to come and be born to a family that couldn't afford anything, really. He allowed himself to be wrapped in cloths and laid in a feeding trough, more than likely, full of probably hay. The God of the universe in hay? Are you kidding me? 
Wow, how humbling. How selfless that he was willing to do this for us. Because you see, from, from the beginning of creation, Jesus was God's plan A for us. There was not a time that God did not plan on Jesus dying for you. He humbled himself by coming to this earth and he took on humanity. But he not only humbled himself by taking on humanity, verses 5 through 11 says that he humbled himself again by taking on death. Matthew 5, or Matthew 20, 28 says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus would have been right to come and allow all of us, force us, call all of us to serve him. He would have been just to do that, but that's not what he did. He came and served us. Are you kidding me? How selfless. How humbling. Jesus came not to be served by all of what he created, though he had the right to do so. Instead, he came and gave up his life. And he, verse, where is it? Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Listen, I know you know what the cross is, but talk about a gruesome death, a vile death. Not only did the God who was existent before all things began humble himself by taking on humanity, he then allowed himself to be completely humiliated on the cross. Jesus died a gruesome death that was reserved for the most heinous, vile criminals in the Roman Empire. Jesus allowed himself, the God of all creation, the God who formed you, allowed himself to be spit on allowed himself to be mocked, to be flogged, to be beaten within an inch of his life, to be stripped completely naked. How humiliating. He allowed nails to pierce his hands and his feet and be hung on a cross, bare. He allowed himself to die a death that he did not deserve to die. That we did. We deserved to die that death that he died. But he took our sin on himself. When Jesus humbled himself by dying that death on the cross that he did not deserve to die, you know what God did? He exalted him <laughs> and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess. So this same name, Jesus Christ, Lord of Lord, King of Kings, that name that was once mocked, ridiculed, flogged, and beaten, left to die, is now the name that all creatures will have to bow to. Woo! <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> Jesus Christ is the perfect picture of selfless sacrifice, church. He died for you. He had everything that he needed and wanted in heaven, yet he came to this earth and he died because he chose to die. Romans 5, 6 through 11 says this, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ didn't die for you while you were good, church. <laughs> Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, 
We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Church, through the king of all kings, the name that is above every other name, the name that at all things will bow down and worship this name, justified you. Which means he declared you to be right. He redeemed you. Church, we stand uncondemned before God. Not because of our goodness, but because of the blood of Jesus on our behalf. If that doesn't get you excited, then nothing else will. Romans 8.1 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Not five minutes from now. Not five years from now. Not when you die, but now. Meaning when God looks at you right now in your state, if you're a follower of Jesus, he doesn't see you in your sin. He sees you through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's a reason for excitement. That's a reason for joy. (laughs) If you're a follower of Jesus in the room today, then you're no longer condemned. But the bad news is if you're not a follower of Jesus in the room today, then you're still condemned. When God looks at you, he sees you through the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our example of humility. We can never humble ourselves like he did. We can never strive for unity by individually seeking to be the humble people that we, we must remain focused on Jesus Christ. This passage, Philippians 2, 1 through 11, is Paul calling the church at Philippi to be united. That's what he's calling them to. And he is calling them to do so by being humble. And he is also giving them the example of humility in Jesus Christ. But if you walk out of here this morning and you tell your kids and your grandkids and your grandma and your grandpa, whatever, that the whole morning was about unity and humility, and that's what we need to do. It is, but above all else, it's Jesus Christ. That's what this whole thing's about. Jesus Christ. Our focus on Jesus Christ is what sustains you when your dark times in life come. Through the loss of a job, through the loss of a loved one, our focus on Jesus Christ is what sustains us to get through those times. Because here's the deal, we can never, we can never humble ourselves like Jesus has humbled himself. And if you think you can, then maybe you need to go back and think about all that stuff we talked about earlier. The main point of this morning is to encourage us to be united and to do so by being humble. But the main, main, main point is Jesus. The name that is above every name. So this Christmas season, remain focused on that name that is above every name. This Christmas season, don't allow your focus, church, to come off of Jesus and to be put on things that are material and temporary. This Christmas season, church, be intentional to focus on Jesus Christ. Rest in him. So what things can you do to ensure that you and your family fixate on Jesus this year? Men, lead your families to Jesus this year. Don't push them. Lead them. (laughs) You follow Christ, and they follow you. Lead them to Jesus this Christmas season. Focus on Jesus. You see, I've been telling our students for the last couple of months that when we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, everything else will fall into its proper place. But if we get that first thing wrong, then we're doomed. 
So church, I'm going to tell you the same thing this morning. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Because when we have our eyes fixed on Jesus, unity, serving, loving other believers, missions, all these other things that are super important will come. But without our eyes on Jesus, it's never going to happen. So may we be a church that's united and humble and above all, focused on Jesus Christ. I go back to this quote. I'll end with this. Christmas to our culture and sometimes to us is about presence underneath the tree. But to the follower of Jesus, Christmas should be about God's presence on the tree. May we all be about God's presence on the tree. Let's turn our eyes to Jesus this morning. Let me pray. Oh, holy God, we thank you for this morning. We praise the name that is above every other name. You alone are worthy. You alone desire and are worthy of our affection and all of our attention. Lord God, may we fix our eyes on you. May we be captivated by you. Lord, I pray that you would make us humble. I pray that you would unite us, Lord, that we would look to Jesus and that we would strive to be more like him. God, I pray that you would be glorified in our lives because we're focused on you this Christmas season. Not anything else, but you alone. Lord God, we pray that you would inhabit our praise this morning and that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable in your sight.